This is High Defamation. listeners and welcome again to another episode of the high defamation podcast this is episode two if you're keeping track and while this abomination of observation is still in its infancy uh, with nearly 250 downloads of episode one at this time i'm calling this thing a success if not at least fuel to keep the fire going i honestly never imagined it would garner this kind of attention and while it may seem minor in the scheme of things, I still can't thank you fine specimens of humanity enough for your listens, for your downloads, and I hope that my upcoming content will prove worthy of sating your appetites for discussion on subversive, harsh, and all-around unpleasant art. Now, for those of you Facebook-inclined, there is a High Defamation Podcast group, and while thus far it's been limited to my posting... I cannot encourage you enough to find it and join and spark some conversation yourself. This whole thing, this whole idea, after all, is a project of engagement. Now, I'll have a link in the podcast description because I'm a giver. It's what I do. So before getting into the meat of the podcast, um, let's just shoot the shit a minute about what's been stuck on the turntable over the past month. We're going to start off with a couple 2018 releases that I totally missed in 2018. And the first is Death Ridge Boys' Right Side of History, released by Blackwater Records out of Portland, Oregon. And where to start, uh, especially when I want to keep it short. It's uh, members of His Hero is Gone, Tragedy, Death Threat, and Criminal Damage, a pedigree that does not disappoint in the least. Bears probably the most in common with criminal damage, but um, rather than the all-out blitz worship and UK-82 attack of said band, Deathridge Boys play a raucous brand of oi-tinged rock and roll that steamrolls everything in its way. Severely pissed, um, it's also oddly, tangibly uplifting. Musically, it hits all the right notes, and lyrically, it's just fucking perfect especially the title track. Um, but you should note that if you have an aversion to extreme leftist ideals, uh, this behemoth is definitely not for you. For that matter, most of what I'm going to be talking about might strike the wrong chord if you have that type of aversion. I, I can't wait to hear more from these guys. I'd love to see them come up my way uh, to play a show. It would be awesome seeing these dudes in a live setting. Next album... It's a self-titled release by Dead Hunt, another Portland band, released by Blackwater Records out of Portland, Oregon, again. Now, Blackwater had a banner 2018 between this, the aforementioned, and Destropados' gutless LP, which I would talk about as well, but I don't want to drag. Um, Dead Hunt, though, is on a completely other level. Rather than adhere strictly to the raw punk DP... <laughs> D-beat tropes of bands like Languid, Absolute, or Condition, who also storm citadels with raw fucking power. Dead Hunt worship at the altar of English dogs forward into battle for my money. And the music on this slab is a fucking relentless glorification of battle and carnage. Roaring solos, a rhythmic battery that aims to deafen and searing vocals that rip and tear through the tunes. This record's going to be a classic. Mark my words. Now, since I've spoken so highly of Blackwater's three most recent releases, if you find yourself in the Portland, Oregon area, please go give Blackwater your support so that they continue doing the GOAT's work in releasing material 
is fucking majestic. Uh, like the label, the brick and mortar shop rules. There is a ton to be found there. At great prices. And no, they're not sponsoring this podcast. I just really like that shop. And anytime I'm in the PDX area, you know I'm hitting that place up. Support physical media, folks. I cannot say that enough. And the last thing I need to ramble about before I cut myself off, and believe me, uh, originally this list was like six records long, and I could talk about all of them at severe fucking length. We're going to talk about the Dicks, Kill from the Heart, originally released by SST in 1983. Uh, this record's been repressed a bunch and uh, is currently still available from Alternative Tentacles, unless I'm mistaken. And that's because it's a hardcore masterpiece. It's a perfect blend of snotty American hardcore and the twang of outlaw country, both in homage and in spite of being Texas natives. I can't begin to fathom the shit these dudes and their brothers and the big boys went through trying to put their message out there back in the day. Savage dissension of right-wing kooks, enraged hails of fuck the police, and snide commentary condemning fascist sympathy and bourgeois apathy. This has been a long favorite that I haven't put on the turntable in way too long. And uh, honestly, right now, I can't stop replaying it. Uh, it's an example of an album so good, the world as it is doesn't fucking deserve it. There. All that said and precious minutes wasted, it's finally time to dive into the heart of this month's episode, and I get personal this time, so savor that. Without any further ado, let's get the goddamn show on the road, friends. Uh, upon reviewing... And listening again to episode one, and I must admit, multiple times, <laughs> if I'm honest. Endless self-scrutiny and criticism. I realized with some relief, though honestly as much trepidation, that I managed to entirely omit any actual personal backstory. What makes me qualified to talk to anyone about music, let alone posit my dialogue as a story worth hearing? What makes my perspective at all unique or noteworthy? I've already stated I'm nothing special in this scene. My take on this shit isn't necessarily singular, though I might articulate it well enough. I'm just a guy that's been a fan of this shit for a very long time who craves a medium to talk about it. I won't mention much about being super alienated from my peers and my preteens, or the isolation of realizing that pop radio was fucking garbage. And I won't spend a lot of time talking about my early teens entering the strange world of junior high school and being shunned for rocking mortification. Thank you, Focus on the Family, and Green River on my Walkman on the school bus in between classes. I'm also definitely going to gloss over meeting a motley crew of punks that were cool with that, who had biker jackets, and <laughs> the sight of 13 to 16-year-old kids in painted-up leathers still seems funny to me, but I digress. Dead Kennedys and Bad Religion and Germs and Christian Death Logos painted on those jackets with paint pens their parents bought them at the local craft shop. Or how those previous statements basically sum up my whole world in the late 80s leading into the 90s more sufficiently than you might think. So where does a kid turn once they've exhausted the punk bins at their local brick and mortar of naked ray gun and blast tapes and obsesses over hitting every local show they can and weekend bus rides over the bridge into the wilds of a then untamed pre-Microsoft pre-Amazon Seattle. Will you make note of the crash shirts, the rudimentary penine and disruptors, jacket paintings, virus, war wound, and icons of filth patches, oh, the patch pants, skin-tight, drop-crotch, quilts of anarcho-punk, far-off rebellion? Well, there had to be something closer to home. I think that most heads' journeys start locally, so mine did as well. And Seattle at the time was rife with political punk, whether it was a sneering feminist vitriol of a band like Whipped, or sly social commentary of North American bison. Show after show, and scrutiny of thanks lists led me to Tacoma's Subvert. They had put out a final collaboration with Anti-Schism in 1991, 
and Anti-Schism is a band I still credit as one of the finest U.S. anarcho-punk bands ever. And I had to dig deeper. Points of reference uh, for Subvert bounce between a mix of early accused, the defunct gestures of chaos, and Christ on a crutch, but they had a misanthropic demeanor that transcended what basically any band I had heard in the greater Seattle area that had managed to put anything to wax. Madness Must End EP, released by Hippie Core out of Mesa, Arizona in 1988. And that was my first pickup, and I played it to death. Anthemic thrashing hardcore that I could not get from local bands whose ranks were local kids, many of whom I went to school with. Even when venturing into the city, it was rare to come across a band that raged so hard and destroyed so savagely. The EP was followed by the Free Your Mind LP in 1990 which was more of the same thrash-informed hardcore, but played tighter and, dare I say, cleaner. The tracks this time, though, had a level of polish rarely heard in the genre. Vital and tightly wound, livid and full of exasperated hooks, dagger-sharp guitar that led the rhythm section in a pummeling assault. <laughs> Hey! Yeah. 
That was What Does It Mean off of Subverts Free Your Mind LP. An excellent track. Now that aforementioned anti-schism split was basically the end of Subvert. Members would go on to explore music far removed from that style of hardcore and Christ Driver, who worshipped old Godflesh, Submit Era Pitch Shifter, Dead World, Skin Chamber. They had an EP and an LP, both released by Profane Existence. And some would also go on to St. Bushmill's Choir, who uh, performed traditional Irish folk songs, similar to the Pogues and groups of that sort. Now, I was given permission to play a Christdriver track on this podcast episode. Given their mention and their history and affiliation with the aforementioned subvert, uh, this is a track that you have not heard before, whether you're familiar with the EP or the LP. It's a fucking rager, and I do hope that you enjoy it.
Final Warning from PDX was next on my list. A short-lived project birthed in 1982 as Broken Trust, and sadly fizzling out in 1986. Another one come and gone by the time I discovered them. And they had members in and out of Poison Idea at the time, and it wouldn't be far-fetched to say there were definitely similarities within their sounds. But where Poison Idea embraced social chaos, final warning, were activists that fully embraced the anarchy they espoused. Their Out of Sight, Out of Mind EP from 1984, released on Pig Champion's Fatal Erection Records as a feral, thrashing burst of anarcho-punk and like Subvert, rather than adhere to the tropes of UK standards set by Crass and their ilk, Final Warning raged with a metallic counterpoint to their hardcore, reminiscent of Motorhead and Slayer. Hell, they opened for Merciful Fate in 1984, and the soundboard recording of their set is fucking amazing. Razor-sharp shredding and some excellent stage banner. Out of sight! Out of mind! <laughs> Recently, and bearing another mention, Blackwater Records, again out of Portland, released their long-lost 1983 demo on 7-inch. And the cuts on that slab are just as vital, just as ear-gouging and crucial as the proper EP. I'm still hooked on this band, even after all the black metal and all the death metal. Final Warning is an old friend that I'm always hyped to revisit. Just all that I do, not for good shit. That's all the 
that was I Quit off of the 1985 compilation Drinking is Great, which was another album released on Fatal Erection Records, and that was a comp, as I said, how many times can I repeat myself, with Poison Idea, Lockjaw, and E13. At this point, it was 1992, maybe 93. And we were avidly reading Profane Existence, picked up from Seattle's Fallout Records, who sadly shuttered their doors in 2003, along with Maximum Rock and Roll and snagging back issues of Flipside. I caught a glimpse of someone photographed in a crucifix shirt. Man, that photo on Dehumanization is still one of the most iconic album covers in hardcore. Up there with Hear Nothing, See Nothing, Say Nothing, and Onward Christian Soldiers as far as memorability goes. Not just aesthetically either, but politically, lyrically, and ideologically as well. was You're Too Old off of Crucifix's 1981 EP, a visceral and raw primer for the following year's 1984 EP put out by Freak Records, a defiant downer of an album that was pissed and dour, but more akin to Deep Wound than that Crass Records released MDC EP. Now, Dehumanization came along in 1983, and it's a template for every American anarcho band that followed, so it's a sad irony that it took me discovering shit like Subvert and final warning to basically blunder upon this savagely aural explosion of punk fucking rock. From the opening rage of Annihilation to the reworking of the track Prejudice, to the motor-driven underlying swagger of Indochina, to the discharged death toll. It's a perfect record. Seriously, there is nothing wrong with this album. The writing and production and presentation are one of the better feats in hardcore history. And somehow, this album is out of print? It only made me want more.
That was Indochina off of the Dehumanization LP. Discovering Crucifix led me to other Cali shit like Final Conflict from Long Beach, who were one of the first hardcore bands to blatantly cop to being influenced as much by thrash as by punk. It'd be a safe statement to posit that without the influence of Final Conflict, Discharge, and Neurosis, my musical journey would have followed a totally different path. And Berkeley's Finest also led me to Christ on Parade, and I'm going to speak to that for a minute. Formed in 1985 and from the East Bay, San Francisco area, they were picked up quick by Pussmort, the infamous Brian Schroeder's label, who released the Sounds of Nature EP that year. Chaos Breeder. Now, Crucifix certainly helped to forge my curiosity in Christ on Parade, but I also knew about them because I was obsessed with Neurosis' first four records, and Noah Landis, closely affiliated with Neurot-centered projects between 93 and 95 before joining Neurosis full-time. He was also a member of Christ on Parade. Between 1985 and 89, Christ on Parade were exceptionally active, releasing a handful of EPs and an excellent LP, A Mind is a Terrible Thing in 1987. The highlights for me are without question that first EP on Pussmort and the LP. Uh, Both are raging slabs of hardcore, often inspired as much by early agnostic front, uh, especially on the EP, as Crucifix. Their sound was definitely familiar, recalling bands that came before, but like the others I've mentioned, Christ on Parade embraced a metallic din that most other hardcore bands of the time seemed to turn their chin up to. It was a ruckus for sure, but it was also calculated and razor-sharp in their attack. Brazenly chaotic, but nuanced and focused. Essential listening.
And that was Rock and Roll Armageddon, another Christ on Parade classic. With my direction set, it led me right to SoCal's Dogma Mundista, formed from the remains of Mexico City's Solucion Mortal, Juan Cejas project was Southern California to a T. Taking influence from everything I've already talked about, not to mention elements that remind of the mid-80s Venice scene a la Beowulf. Dogma Mundista are one of Hardcore's overlooked many, a band totally forgotten by time except for those that were there in the scene, and I was lucky enough to stumble across them. With only a demo, an EP and an LP, both dropped in 1992, they were a short-lived project, burning out as rapidly and brilliantly as they raged. The LP, Destiny or Greed, is a statement of their politics, abrasively anarchistic, a mirror of what they saw as a social plague of conformity taking over not just the region, but the scene. Lyrically poignant, for what is essentially a very fucking good crossover record. It's a barrage of metallic punk, a rhythmic onslaught, equal parts No Mercy and Dr. No. of the Destiny or Greed LP, that was The Sky Turns Black by Dogma Mundista. And after them, bassist Raygun moved on to several projects, Scarred for Life, who were fairly prolific, even appearing on a disclose split, Contra Class, which had Dystopia members, but most notably, in my humble opinion, the supreme Glycine Max. Short-lived, more so than his earlier band, Glycine Max released one album in 1996, Violent Mind, Peaceful Heart. It was a compilation comprising of an A-side filled with tracks recorded in 1990 and a B-side that had demo cuts from 88 or 89 and a live Gilman set from 1990. It took the peace punk preached by Crucifix and Final Conflict but found a sound more reminiscent of UK shit like Antisex, Out from the Void EP or Japan's SDS and Minneapolis Crustlord's Misery. The album is chock-full of anthemic crushers and fuzzed-out bottom-end, plotting and rhythmic and totally devastating. They wore their politics brazenly on their sleeves, unapologetically leftist, but all about direct action. It's hard to pick a favorite because all the tracks rip and tear, ending with a fucking perfectly placed Nazis killed cover that's as prescient now as it was when the album released in 96, as it was when Hellbastard actually wrote it in 1986. <laughs> Oh, yeah. 
That was the Glycine Max track, Crust Core, an anthem for the scene, if ever there was one. Now finally, let me speak a little while on fucking Brazil. Geographically, you couldn't get much further away from where I grew up and grew roots in the scene. At least from my perspective, it was far as fuck. Certainly further away than Japan, and thanks to a lot of the above-mentioned projects, I learned to seek out shit from the land of the rising sun like the sexual, asbestos, gizm, and the execute. Cementing an appreciation for what at the time was an exceptionally far-removed scene and culture that mirrored where I came from. As far as Brazil was concerned, it might as well have been the moon. But somehow, somewhere along the line, I stumbled across two records that put the country dead in my sights. And that first record was the Rados de Parau 84 debut, Crucificados Pelo Sistema. Holy shit. To this day, RDP has never been so visceral or unhinged, feral or fleeting. They, much like their West Coast contemporaries, were like a speeding locomotive of pent-up rage, malcontent, and absolutely savage. If Skitzlickers grew up in the slums of Brazil, Crucificados Pelo Sistema is what we would have gotten instead of GBG 82. the title track off of RDP's first proper full-length LP. And they put out a lot of fucking records too, but I lost track way back when after the Descanse M. Paz LP, which followed a split with Cholera in 85. Cogumelo of all labels released Cada Dia Mayos, Suho e Agressivo in 1987, and Road Racer released Brazil in 89. Retrospectively, both are also outstanding records, but at the time I discovered them, it was as if Ratos de Parau were a completely different band playing with a sound that I hadn't fully grown to love yet the same way as the D-beat, crusty, hardcore, gutter-punk ruckus I had come up on after the starter pack shit. Now though, I'll rep that material just as hard all damn day. The second Brazilian opus was Lobotomia's 1987 self-titled and self-released LP. This shit was my speed and then some crossover that was charged and motor-driven, just enough to give it a rollicking edge. It harkened back to Final Warning in a big way, at least to my ears. There's too many stompers on here to pick a favorite, though. Soos Mortos Now Reclam is a fucking earworm if I've ever heard one. It's got hooks for days and a rhythm section with enough swagger to accommodate every UK anarcho-punk that had none. <laughs>
And that was the previously mentioned track, So Os Mortos, Now Reclamem. The Venom and Motorhead influences here are obvious, as is the early Metallica and Slayer influence, and with the 1989 follow-up, Nada E Como Parece, on Cogumelo, that sound was exploited and dialed in more tightly, more refined, but somehow just as vicious, just as relentless, and just as punk-fucking-rock as the debut. It lacks none of the heft, none of the rage, none of the rawness, and none of the piss and vinegar that both the demo and the debut flaunt. And goddamn, when it stomps, it fucking aims to flatten. Every track on this thing is a circle pit waiting to happen, anthemic and defiant and off the fucking chain. <laughs> Logo de Sisto, Mas and Sisto, off of Labatamia's second album. Now, it'd be easy for me to claim that with the chance discovery of Ratos de Prao or Labatamia, it opened up the entire Brazilian scene, but that'd be a really tough claim to make. There's so many bands that make up the underground down there, it's next to impossible to know them all, unless you have the benefit of geography on your side. And I think that's true just about anywhere, especially when you're in the age range that I was upon newly discovering all of this. As heads get older, unfortunately, the world gets smaller, especially during this era of instant gratification and easy fucking access. I hear people gripe about having to wait five to seven days for the delivery of a record, and back then when you had to drop either disguised cash or maybe a money order in an envelope to go to some guy in Portugal or Finland that you're trading tapes with, you were lucky if you had it in four to six months. Having to depend on the punctuality of zines like Profane Existence back then was rough. Cash was always limited. And just as limited were my discoveries of international bands. I do think it's safe to say that it ingrained a sense that even outside of the American West Coast and far off Japan, even mainland Europe, there was a burgeoning scene of anarcho bands that passed on that neo-martial rhythm and washboard guitar sound of Crass and their contemporaries. Not that I appreciated that sound any less. Crass was and always will be a favorite, but the above bands were what really instilled my interest, even obsession, with further expanding my musical spectrum. Eventually, because of RDP and Lobotomy, I encountered Sepultura, Sarcophago, Volcano. 
Because of those West Coast bands, I opened up to atmospheric crust like Dystopia, Thrash in the vein of Excel or The Accused, and yes, death metal and grindcore like Terrorizer, Autopsy. Even first wave black metal, a la Hellhammer, Cat, Enemy, or Parabellum, in a way that I never would have otherwise. It was also proof of the cultural and ethnic diversity that spanned punk rock, an outlet for inclusion that still helps to inform my opinions on scenes and their stalwarts. Dare I say that this path has even made me a better person? Well, maybe that's pushing it, but I'd certainly be a different, more boring person without it. That's a rabbit hole I have no interest in diving into today. my listeners, after all has been said and done, have an interest in expanding your listening beyond what I've mentioned this episode, there's plenty more history for you. From the PNW, there was Inhumane, Behead the Prophet, No Lord Shall Live, yes, named after a deicide track, and the Muckleteo Fairies, Positive Greed, The Farts, Decrepit and Consume, Resist, Mass Control, The Deprived, Severed Head of State, Detestation, and countless others that I don't have the room to include. From Cali, there was even more. Corrupted ideals, against, wasted youth, capitalist casualties, struggle, attitude adjustment, dystopia, spaz, econochrist, and more power violence bands littered across the state through the 90s than literally anywhere else. This list would have been unfathomably long. From Brazil, Agrotoxico, Ojo Seco, Now Religio, Tropa Suicida, Brigada de Odio, Fogo Cruzado, Lixomania, and Chaos 64, god damn, the truth is that even as long as I've had a foot in this scene, I'm still learning about how much music from this region rules. Now that all said, I want to thank you again for bearing with me through this second episode of the High Defamation Podcast. I had a great time making this episode, putting it together, and getting it ready for all of you to listen to, and hopefully enjoy as much as I did. And I look forward... To any of the feedback or comments, reviews, or otherwise good vibes sent my way for future episodes of the High Defamation Podcast. That out of the way, thanks again, and until next time, this has been High Defamation. <laughs>